Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Well, good morning. How are we doing? So you heard just a second ago, but Easter's coming, and Easter's a big deal for us. Uh, you know, it's been said that Easter is kind of the Super Bowl of Sundays for churches uh, and for Christians. And some, uh, somebody this past week was like, well, I don't really understand that. Like, it's important, and I get it, but why do churches, so many churches, like, put so much energy into Easter as opposed to just it kind of being like any other Sunday in 52 weeks of the year? Well, the reason for that is because Easter is different. It stands alone in its importance to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so for the church, we put a lot of importance on that. And it really comes down to this. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what Paul says. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. That hurts the preacher. And your faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised, then my preaching's useless and your faith is useless. And you go, wow, that's pretty harsh. I don't really understand that. Like, you know, there's some other things that I believe and some other things that are happening. And so why is it that that's more important or the most important, or at least kind of, why is that way up the list? Well, he goes on to explain this uh, a few verses later. He says, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. The idea being that if we don't understand that the power of Easter and the cross, and not just the cross, but the resurrection from the grave, what it does for us is it proves to us that nothing is more powerful than God. And that the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and I according to Scripture. And that the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, when they're coupled together, prove to us the power and the sovereignty of God. And that our sins are forgiven and his power is demonstrated to us so that as we walk, we have hope. As we walk through our lives, we have hope because we recognize that even his own death was not enough to keep him here on the earth, that he ascended back to the Father, and he makes intercession for us. And so that's why it's a big deal for us. And so you heard it already, but this Friday night, we've got a night of worship and communion. It's going to be a really special night of reflection. I encourage you to be here for that. And then we start our Easter services on Saturday night. So Saturday night, glow-in-the-dark Easter egg thing for the kids at 7, and then our three services on Sunday. And here's what I would say. I know you're at 10 o'clock, and I know as you look around today on this storm Sunday, you say, oh, there's seats. If you don't have to come at 10 o'clock next Sunday, don't come. Come a different service, all right? So come at 8.30, come Saturday night, come at 11.30. Help us with that because we're anticipating that 10 o'clock. Now, I may scare everybody away, and it may just be me at 10 o'clock. That's okay. But 10 o'clock, we're anticipating, will be our largest crowd. So help us with that if you possibly can. It's going to be a great Sunday, a great weekend next weekend, and we're excited about that. Last week was spring break. Some of you were able to travel, get away for a few days. Others of you are like, I'm an adult. I don't have spring break, uh, and I recognize that. But we've got some uh, kids still in school, and so uh, we were able to get away for a few days, not the whole week and, and go uh, spend some time away just together as a family, which was awesome. Pastor Trevor did a great job last week kicking off this series called For the Love of Canton. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go listen to that on the podcast. But, uh, you know, spring break reminds me of a, a story that I've told, I think, here before, but the idea that I was leaving on a trip with my family one time, and uh, we were getting away for a few days. The kids were a little bit younger at that point, and so we had loaded up the car, and we were leaving on vacation, and as we're pulling out of our driveway, I hit the garage door button. The garage door comes down. I don't see it all the way down. I just, I'm ready to get on vacation, so I pull out of the driveway, take off, and I'm gone. And so a few days later, we returned home, and as I'm unloading the car, 
my neighbor from across the street, who I know, but I don't know super well. We're not like best friends. Our kids are around the same age. They've played together some. They're a little more private, so we haven't like interacted a ton. They kind of keep to themselves. But I knew him, knew of him. So he came over. He's like, hey, did you go on a trip? I said, yeah, we did. He said, oh, that's great. He said, well, that's kind of what I thought. He said, a couple of days ago, I noticed that you guys didn't seem to be around. Your car wasn't around. Your kids weren't playing in the yard, which they normally do. He said, but your garage door was up. Well, that's weird because I know I closed my garage. And he said, well, it was up. And he said, so I told my wife something that's, that's not what they normally do. That's not normal. He said, so I watched for an hour or two, a couple hours. He said, so I came over to your house. I knocked on your door. Nobody answered. He said, so I hope you don't mind. But I went into your garage and hit the button to close your garage door. When I did, as it was coming down, it hit a broom that was evidently like on the side and stopped it from closing all the way. And it went back up. He said, so I moved the broom. I came in. I hit the button. He said, and I, I did the little bunny hop over the sensor, you know, got out of there without having to go through your house. He said, I did not go in your house, but I just wanted you to know. And I was like, thank you so much. I didn't even realize what a good neighbor he was uh, because he was protecting me when I was vulnerable and I didn't even know it. I thought the garage door was going to close. I didn't see that the broom had fallen. And so I was susceptible to someone coming in and taking advantage of us. What, what he didn't know that we later corrected, but when, when we had moved into that house, inside of the garage was the interior door going into our kitchen. That door did not have a lock on it. When we moved in, it had a doorknob. Everything was, was fine. The door worked great. It just didn't have a lock. So the, the idea was that you made sure you closed the garage. And so if somebody got into our garage, they could have come right into our house and taken anything that they wanted from us. And so I was thankful for a good neighbor who was kind of keeping watch for me. My brother had the exact opposite story in his life. When he and his wife uh, got married, not shortly thereafter, they moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where they still live, and they moved into a, like a little starter home, and not the best neighborhood. It wasn't an awesome place, but they, it was what they could afford. They loved it, and so they had some, some neighbors that lived next to them that had some kids, and you know, those, a couple teenagers and some late grade school kids, and so my brother allowed them to play basketball in his driveway, and uh, he would, you know, in some busy seasons, he'd pay them 10 or 15 bucks. They'd come over and mow his little front yard, wasn't a ton of grass, mow the grass. And so they were hanging out around his house a good bit. Well, one day he loaded up his car, and they waved at him, and he said, hey, see you guys in a couple of days. And then he pulled out and left for vacation. And when he returned home, he came in to find that the television had been stolen off the wall, and the laptop off the kitchen table had been stolen, and some cash had been taken. Oh, man, I can't believe we got robbed. That's awful. So he files the insurance claim. He gets some money from, you know, from it, and he you know, kind of saves some money. And so he buys a new TV eventually, and he buys a new laptop and you know, whatever. So a few months later, he's getting ready to go on another trip. And so he's loading up his car, and he sees that the neighbors kind of come out, and they're watching him load the car. And he's like you know, waving at him, see you guys in a few days. And so then he gets in the car, and he drives away, and he comes back a few, a few days later. And wouldn't you know it, but the TV had been stolen off the wall, and some of his other possessions had been taken. And he's like, that is so weird. Is it weird? Is it? Okay. So he decides, okay, I'm going to be smarter. And so after a few days, a few weeks, he buys a new TV, buys some of the things to replace the possessions. He's home for several months. And as he's leaving this next time, he decides, okay, I'm not even going to tell him. I'm not even going to tell him I'm leaving. I'll just see. You know, so he kind of he, he hides some of his stuff. He parks in the cover of night. You know, or packs in the cover of night, you know, whatever. Gets in, leaves. Wouldn't you know it, when he comes home a few days later, the TV has been stolen. His possessions have been stolen. You're, you're thinking, man, this is like a preacher's story. I promise, this is true. So then he's like, okay, I think it's my neighbors. So the next time he's going to go out of town, he tells a different neighbor who he trusts, hey, watch, I want to make sure. He takes the TV off the wall, hides it under his bed, takes some other possessions, hides it under the couch, 
He leaves. He comes back. Wouldn't you know it? The TV's stolen from underneath the bed. The possessions are stolen from underneath the couch. The neighbor across the street says, those kids were the ones that went in your house. A few weeks later, they actually visited his church. That was awkward. But um, <laughs> I kid you not, here, here was the conversation with his wife. She said, I love you, but I'm moving. You can move with me and live in a new house with new neighbors, or you can stay here by yourself. So they live in a wonderful new house now, happily married. And uh... No, he had the exact opposite. He had some neighbors that took advantage of him. He couldn't prove it necessarily. He had some neighbors that took advantage of him. So today I want us to talk about this idea of neighbors. Last week we did kick off this series talking about for the love of Canton as we lead up towards Easter to understand what is our role in our community where God has placed us here in this place, for this season of time, for such a time as this. What is our responsibility? What is our role? This story that we have today is a very famous story. It's found in Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible or a device want to go there with me, it's one that you know. It's a story that the title in your Bible or the device that you have may call it the story of the Good Samaritan. But today, even if you know this story, I'm encouraging you to kind of lay aside your preconceived ideas and thoughts and the things that you're already thinking, and let's really focus our hearts and our minds onto what God may be saying to us out of this very familiar story. This is in Luke chapter 10. A young man has come up to Jesus as he's been teaching the crowds, and the young man asks Jesus, he says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to, to do to live forever with you? And Jesus says, well, what have you heard? And the young man replies in verse 27 and says this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, as we read this, we're actually privy to some thoughts that the young man has that the listeners right there in that crowd would not have had. Luke records that the young man asks the follow-up question about who is my neighbor to justify his actions. Now, I've done that in my life. I'm sure you never have. I've done that. To justify my actions, I ask questions or make statements, perhaps. I see this fleshed out in the lives of my children where they ask questions or make statements to kind of make sure I know they're not the culprit, even though they actually are, kind of blame it on their siblings. And so I understand how this works. But the young man, to justify his actions, kind of follows up with Jesus to ask another clarifying question. Now, when I read this story, every time I've ever read this story, I, I think all the way back to maybe as a child or even as a teenager, when I was actually reading it for myself, I have always read it this way, that the young man was asking Jesus, kind of what's the lowest level Christianity I can have? Like, what's the bottom line? Like, what, what's the baseline? I, if I do this, I'm good to go, but like, I don't have to keep all the laws. Like, there's a lot of laws. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of commandments. There's a lot of truths. Like, can you just tell me, like, what's the bare minimum I can do and still get by? I don't know how you shop, but when I shop, especially for clothes, here's what I do. I walk into a store, straight to the clearance or the sale rack. If they don't have anything I like, I'm out. It takes me about 10, 15 seconds. My wife gets her mail delivered to that store. She's there so long. She walks around in aisles and rows and around the... We revisit places we've already been. She'll carry stuff around the store as if she's going to buy it, only to decide at the time of purchase, you know what, I don't really like this. I don't really need... And then she puts it away. It is a frustrating experience, which she knows. I'm not talking about behind her back. I've said it to her face. And so, like, when I walk into a store, I'm looking, what's the best deal I can get? What, I want every store to operate a little bit like Chinatown. When I go to New York, I, that's my favorite place to go. I'll walk in, they'll be like, $25. I'm like, I'll give you three. And they're like, well, no, I can't, I can't take three. I'm like, I'm out. And they're like, no, 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 what about 20? I'm like, I'll give you 250. I want to have a deal. 
I want to negotiate. I want this thing to work. And so when I walk into a store, I'm looking for, I think that's what the guy was doing. I think the guy was saying to Jesus, can you give me a good deal in Christianity? Can you tell me, like, what's the lowest I can pay in this transaction and still get the goods of eternal life? Now, maybe you don't read it that way, but that's what I think he's asking. Like, what's required of me? Even when Jesus says, well, you know. Like, what have you heard? It's not Jesus who answers him the first time to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the young man who tells him, this is what I've heard. This is what I know the law to be. And Jesus says, okay, we'll do this and you'll live. He was like, yeah, 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 but let me ask one more clarifying question. Like, if that's true, then who is my neighbor? And as a response to that question, that's where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. We pick that story up in verse 30. It says this, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And then the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. When I was reading this this week, my mind goes to weird places sometimes when I'm reading the Bible. I thought this almost sounds like a good joke. You know, a priest, a temple assistant, and a Samaritan walk into... No, I'm just kidding. I won't finish that for you. So... When Jesus is telling this story, I think it's important for us to understand the context, to understand the full part of this story, because as we read this, we may not fully recognize why some of the truths of this story are important. But Jesus was talking to a group of Jewish people. So as he's setting the story up, he starts by saying, there was a Jewish man who was attacked. So he's trying to immediately hook them by making them see that the main character in this story is somebody just like them. This would be like if I was telling you a story today and I wanted to pull some truth out, I would say there was a man or a woman from Canton, Georgia, who was, well, now you go, well, I'm, I'm from Canton. Okay, well, I mean, that's all right. So you're telling a story that I could probably pull some application from. Jesus was trying to get their attention by pointing them to a Jewish man. They go, okay, well, I connected this story. Then something terrible happens to that Jewish man. Through no fault of his own, he's attacked by bandits. They rob him, they beat him up, they strip him of his clothes, and they leave him half dead in the ditch. Well, now these people are outraged. Why would this happen to someone who's just like us? And then Jesus begins to tell them the story of how these people that came upon this man responded. The first person that he chooses is a priest. Now, I don't know what your, moder- your thought of, of modern preachers or pastors or priests is. I'm not sure what your faith journey has been. But if you can put that aside for a second and recognize that in this first century, these listeners would have been thinking about someone who was very revered in the town. The priest would have been someone who offered sacrifice on behalf of the people, someone who had dedicated their lives to abstaining from everything of the world to really focus their attention on worship to God. And so they would collect the things from the people of God, and then they would petition God on behalf of the people. And so when when they hear, oh, a priest happens by, immediately their minds are going to think, and the priest knelt down and cared for the Jewish man because the priests love us, the Jews. 
But Jesus doesn't say that that's what happens. He said the man is in the ditch. The man just like you is in the ditch. And the priest, by chance, happens by, sees the man, goes to the other side of the road to avoid him, and keeps walking. That would be shocking to the listeners. That they would hear that the priest who had dedicated himself to service unto God would leave someone who is hurting in a place of need without even... What? But in this story, what Jesus is trying to show is that the priest was too busy doing the temple work. He was going from point A to point B, and he had no time to stop and to deal with anyone who was hurting. He had no time to be interrupted on his journey, and so he continued moving. He even moved away from the need so that the man could not cry out to him, could not reach out for him. He wanted to keep on. He was doing the good work, the busy work that he was called to do. And then Jesus introduces another character. He says, now after the priest had gone by, there was a temple assistant who came and happened upon this man. Now when he says a temple assistant, this would be one of two kinds of people. This would either be someone who lived at the temple and served in the temple for either all of their life or this season of their life. Sometimes widows, sometimes orphans were brought to the temple and they served there in that place. Sometimes these were non-priests that just served the people of the temple as they came for worship. They would provide them for the, with the means for them to do worship. They would collect the sacrifice and prepare it for the priest to offer the sacrifice. So that's one person, somebody that was there all the time. Or there was another group of people, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, I'm just trying to explain it. It would be somebody kind of like the army reserves. It would be like the temple reserves. So what they would do is they would live their life. They were married with children, had a job, but one week out of the month perhaps, or maybe one month out of the year, they would go to the temple and live there and serve there for that week or for that month. And these would not be the priests of the temple. These would just be the temple assistants where they would come and do those same jobs. And they didn't live there full time. They just came to serve in the larger cities, in the larger places they would come. And they would, they would come to serve, to offer their service and, and their uh, lives to God during that season of time. And so when these people would hear it, they would go, a temple assistant? Surely this would be someone because they're, they're servants, they're people who have a heart to respond to need. We've interacted with these people when we've brought our sacrifice to the temple. Surely this would be someone who would stop. And here's what happens as Jesus tells the story. Sure enough, the temple assistant comes and he kneels down to see the need. But he's so overwhelmed by the need. I, I don't know how to bandage this. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not sure how to respond. I don't have enough money perhaps to care for all the needs. And so after he's looked at the man, he gets up, goes to the other side of the road, and continues on his way. This would have been shocking to the listener. Not only does a priest stay too busy to respond to someone in need, but now a temple assistant has gotten close to a need, but chosen not to respond and moved on their way on their journey without helping this Jewish man like us who is in need. Then there's a third character. Now, for us to recognize why this third character is important, you have to understand that the Samaritans and the Jews hated one another. Think about the South in the early 1900s and the mid-1900s of blacks and whites. Think about modern day when you start thinking about nationalities that are warring against nationalities. And Jesus is going to use one of those individuals as the hero of the story. Someone who was completely different from his listeners. These Jewish people who identified that the person in the story who was hurting and in need was someone just like them. Now the people that were like them had ignored the need and someone who was opposite of them responds to the need. Even the way that Luke 
describes the Samaritan. He says, then a despised Samaritan comes along. I don't know who you're thinking about right now that could be the furthest person in your mind that could respond to your hurts and your pains and try to offer healing. But that's who Jesus was using in this story to teach us a lesson. It would be as if, and I want to be very sensitive and very careful, so please hear my heart as I, as I try to offer this as an example. It would be as if I were standing on this stage on September the 12th, 2001, and telling you a story about the hero being Osama bin Laden. In that season of the history of our country and the events that had unfolded in the previous 24 hours as the events are taking place and the descriptions of who we were to blame and what was happening, we, we turned our, our, our hatred towards this enemy. What if I were to use that enemy as the hero of a story who showed compassion to you in a time of need? <gasps> Shocking. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Even in the idea that it's the good Samaritan is a juxtaposition from Luke saying he's the despised Samaritan. It's a difference from the way that the Jewish listener would have listened to the story thinking no way that a Samaritan could serve someone in need and hurting who was a Jewish person. The good Samaritan. And as I read through this passage and I recognize what Jesus might have been doing and might have been trying to say to us, I recognize that for all of us, this story can illuminate where our focus is. When we first opened our, our church, it was a campus at that point, we were going to meet in Sequoia High School. A lot of the lead up of those early days and then into the first season of our church, we talked a lot about a specific number. We talked a lot about the 85,000 unchurched people within seven miles of Sequoia High School. In our research to determine where we were going to locate our church, we, we recognized that according to statistics, there were 85,000 unchurched people within seven miles of Sequoia High School. And so we planted ourselves right in the middle of that to say we want to try to reach as many of those unchurched people as possible. Now, over the next few minutes as I talk about the idea of unchurched, I'm not implying that every unchurched person is unsaved. I'm not implying that every unchurched person is a bad person or they've been stripped naked and left for dead. And that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying I want us to turn our attention out towards those who aren't in church today. And so, as I think about that, the latest statistics tell me that 58% of Cherokee County is unchurched. That was kind of a mind-boggling number to me, because we're like in the buckle of the Bible belt. And there's incredible churches here, and a lot of people that I interact with go to church. They're involved in a church. Oh yeah, I go to such and such church. And yet, if these statistics are be to be believed... More people that you and I know don't go to church than those who do. If the numbers are to be believed, our county is somewhere around 245 or 250,000 people, give or take, right now. And so that means that currently there are about 145,000 people in Cherokee County who do not go to church. 145,000 people in our county who do not go to church. Many of them, I'm sure, are incredible people. But if the Bible is to be believed, and I do believe it, any of those people who are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ would spend an eternity apart from him. That should break our hearts. That should break our hearts. The idea that we live in close proximity to a group of people 
who don't yet know or have not yet responded to what we believe to be the life-changing message of Jesus Christ in the way that many of us have responded to that message. It should break our hearts. And so when I read through the story of the Good Samaritan and I keep these numbers in mind, it causes me to realize that these people are our who. They're our who. We've talked about why we exist, but when I think about who we exist for, it's them. And here's what I mean by that. God forgive us if more of our attention is focused on a few hundred of us than a few hundred thousand of them. If our comfort and our fulfillment and our opinions and our desires are more important than reaching them, heaven help us. And I want you to know that my heart and my desire is that we, not alone, but together with the collective community of brothers and sisters of Christ in Cherokee County, would go after these people to say, God, we have received grace and mercy we do not deserve. Help us extend that grace and mercy to those who have not yet received it. And if at any point we quit looking at them and we turn the attention to ourselves, shut this place down. That's my heart. That our hearts and our minds and our lives would never stray too far from these people. Because they are our neighbors. This young man comes to Jesus. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He says, what have you heard? He says, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, do this and you'll live. He says, okay, well, but who's my neighbor? I think that same question is available to all of us today. Who is your neighbor? And as you think about who your neighbor is, I see three things that jump out of me, jump out to me in this story. Just closing quickly here. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. I think it starts with compassion. There was a study done by some researchers out on the West Coast, and some of it predominantly starts at Cal Berkeley. It says compassion literally means to suffer together. It's among this idea of a feeling that arises when you're confronted with another's suffering and you feel motivated to relieve that suffering. It's not just empathy. I feel what you feel. It's based on what you feel. I want to do something to change what you feel. That's compassion. It starts with compassion. And if you say, well, I'm not a very compassionate person, I've got great news for you today. I believe compassion can grow and can be learned. And I think it starts in two ways. One, we confront our own sense of entitlement. Wherever we feel like what we have, we deserve. We ask for God to forgive us. We ask him to help us to see people that are broken and hurting in the way that he sees them. And then we respond. And if you're not really sure how to even start that, I would say position yourself in places around people who are in need, who are hurting. Put yourself in a place where someone just needs a shoulder to cry on. They just need you to offer a cup of cold water in his name. It's so interesting to me how often we go on missions trips around the world, which I believe in. I just got back from one. And we forget that there are people in need literally across the street from us. And so we confront our own entitlement and we position ourselves near those who are in need. I think that's how we grow compassion. The next thing that I see here is verse 34. It says, going over to him, 
The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn and he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper the coins and he says, take care of him. If the bill runs higher, I'll pay for it. You can't just feel something towards someone. To be a good neighbor, you have to go to them. You can't stay on the other side of the street because you don't want to get your hands dirty. Compassion compels us to respond. And so we go to them. And when we go to them, we don't just say, I'm so sorry for what you're walking through. We say, hey, let me take the best of what I have and try to meet the needs that you have. And let me not just give you a handout. Let me not just throw some money at a problem to be the solution. No, no, let me actually walk with you in this journey, perhaps, or connect you to people who can walk this journey with you so that you can actually find some resolution to the problem that got you here in the first place. Let me remove you from this circumstance. Let me remove you from these relationships. Let me put you in a new place so that you can get healthy and you can get whole and you can get help. So we go to them. He went the extra mile. And then I read this in verse 36 as Jesus responds. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man? The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said, yeah, now go and do the same. It occurs to me that in this story, there are actually two questions that are asked. At the beginning of the story, the young man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who should be the recipient of my good deeds? And Jesus tells this entire story, and he changes the question. And he says, based on everything that you've just heard, who was a neighbor? Who did the good deeds? He wasn't as concerned with the recipient of your good deeds as he was that you are the kind of person who poured out the good deeds. He wasn't as concerned about who should you love as yourself as he was that you were a person who did love others as yourself. Jesus completely told a story and changed the question at the same time. I'm not even sure how he did it. But he confronted the heart of this man and probably of so many of his listeners. And he changed the questions that you and I are asking. The first question that maybe you're asking is like this man where it would be like, who do I have to love? Like there's a lot of hurting people. There's a lot of need. There's a lot of stuff. I'm busy. I got a lot happening. If there's somebody lying in the ditch, my tendency perhaps, I don't know, is just to keep walking on my side of the road. I, I, can't, I can't stop. I'm doing a good work. I just got to keep going. So like, if I got to love somebody, Jesus, would you just point out the person or two that I really need to spend the time? Who do I have to love? Is it that guy? Because if it's that guy, I'll stop. But if it's probably not that guy, I'll just keep moving. And just show me who I've got to love. Lord, I'm a, I'm a temple assistant. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. I can't help these. I'm not some kind of, you know, person that can help free somebody from addiction. I don't know all the steps and all this. I'm not a counselor. Like, I see the need, but like, what do you expect me to do? I'm just a little old me. I, but if you'll tell me who I have to love, I'll do it. I just, I just don't know what you want me to do. And Jesus tells the story. He says, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who do I have to love. It's who do I get to love? Who do I get to love? Like God, as I'm walking through life, oh, I see somebody in need. I get to love them. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to love them. And when I get up, I walk over here. Oh, God, thank you for the opportunity to love them. God, thank you that you first love me. 
Thank you, God, that people would know that I am your disciple because of how I love other people. Thank you, God, that I don't create love. I'm just a mirror reflecting the love that you've demonstrated towards me. God, who do I get to love today? You see the change? You see the change in the way that we interact? You see the change in the way that we leave our house every morning? Not, oh, God, please don't send anybody my way. I got to love today. <laughs> to God, if you send them, I love them. If I see them, I love them. If I interact with them, I'll love them because you first love me. Here's the problem for so many of us, myself included, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes today and I'm sorry if you think I'm mean. Please come back next week. I'll be nicer. There's a group of us that we have to fight some battles other people don't have to fight. Our name is church people. And sometimes us church people get this sickness it's called self-righteousness, where we think we're the guy that's walking by the road, and we forget that we used to be the guy laying in the ditch. And when I remember that I was the guy in the ditch, I stop and help people in the ditch. Heaven help us. If we ever forget that the story of God is not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And the story of Jesus, I believe, is still focused on those who don't know him yet. I've been talking to my kids recently. We work through this journey of faith, and as they make their faith their own and not just my faith for them. And they've been talking about heaven what heaven's going to look like, what they should know, what they should think, what they should focus on. And here's what I told them, and you may not agree with this. I said if the ultimate reason we were living was to get to heaven, then I believe that the moment you prayed the sinner's prayer, God would take you there. If that was all it was about, I believe in heaven. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I believe we will spend eternity with God. But if God only was concerned about you living with him in heaven, then the moment you entered in relationship with him, he would have taken you there. So it compels me to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do until you decide it's time for me to go there? Like, what is my purpose? Why am I living here? Why is this my city? Why is this my church? Why am I in the family I'm in? Why am I working at the job I'm working at? Why do my kids play on that sports team? Why do they go to that school? Why do we live on that street? God, who do you want me to love? So we want to give you a really practical way this week just to begin to compel us to love people and to bless people because we've been blessed. When you walk out in a few moments, you're going to get a bundle of these cards. They're called bless back cards. This is not an invite to church card. We got those too. This week is love week. Yesterday we started, we served some people at the angel house. Thank you to those who were able to serve yesterday. Some young women and young girls there. And we just kind of loved on them and loved on their facility to make it a better place for them to live. And beginning tomorrow, all week long, we're going to bless the first responders of our community and teachers and faculty and 
people that serve us and serve our families. But when you walk out today, you're going to get a bundle of these cards. And all it says is something extra to show you that God's love you, and God loves you. And so do we. And I'm asking you to take a bundle or two. Take a three, four bundles if you think you'll use them. And just begin to pray, God, how would you have me to use these to show your love to the people around me today? On Friday, we're going to make a concerted effort to use these kind of collectively throughout the community. Buy the person's meal behind you. Pump the gas of the person that's across the way from you at the gas station. Hand it to somebody that you're blessing in some tangible way. It doesn't have to be financial. Maybe it's an act of service. Not too long ago, I was at a grocery store. There was an elderly lady that was pushing her cart. And I just, she looked like she was having some trouble. I just said, ma'am, can I help you load those into your trunk? I'm not some kind of crazy person. Can I just help you? I did. I said, God loves you. What can we do? We just, we don't stay so busy that we don't respond. And we don't get so overwhelmed that we don't respond. We just respond. Because the question today for all of us is what kind of neighbor am I? What kind of neighbor am I? Not who is my neighbor, not who do I have to love. Who do I get to love? What kind of neighbor am I? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. God, I pray today for every person in this place that they would hear your heart and not my words, that anything that I said today that muddied the water, Lord, your Holy Spirit would just do a work, create such clarity. God, I pray for every person in this place today, all of us, myself included, that God, we, as much as humanly possible, we would have the heart that you have towards our community. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to respond. Don't let us get too busy that we just keep walking. Don't let us get so overwhelmed that we neglect what we can do. God, let us kneel down and love people. If today you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, it's, it's a need for salvation. I'm asking God, to forgive my sins and lead my life from this moment forward. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Put it right back down after you put it up. Thank you so much. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, I just want to be more compassionate. I want to break away from any sense of entitlement that I have. I want God to bring me near people of need, and I want to respond. I want to be a blessing because God has blessed me. I want to show grace because God has given grace to me. I want to love because he first loved me. I want to be a person of compassion. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? God, you see these hands today? I ask you to respond to us as only you can. God, we thank you for who you are, that you are a God of compassion, so much so that you sought us out by sending Jesus to the earth. So God, every person that's apart from you, I ask you now to forgive their sins and be the Lord of their life. God, for those who are in relationship with you or perhaps those who are not but desire to be more compassionate, help us to be a good neighbor. 
who do I get to love today? In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.